Hey, I'm Mike Joseph, and thank you for listening to Detoxicity, a show by men, about men, but for everyone. I hope you enjoy the content of this podcast, and I want to let you know about a few things you can do to support us and our mission to challenge traditional notions of masculinity and create a more communicative, positive, and loving environment for all. You can subscribe to Detoxicity on any podcast platform that you use to listen. We are available just about everywhere. Also, don't hesitate to rate and comment as these help us move up in the podcast rankings. I'm on social media, or at least I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok as Detox Pod Guy. Feel free to drop me a follow. Now I have a Patreon page, yay! And uh, Patreon gives you the opportunity to get cool merch and exclusive episodes of this podcast in exchange for subscribing. Go to patreon.com slash detoxicitypod to find out more. Uh, finally, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, whether you found an episode of the podcast particularly enjoyable or enlightening, or you know someone who'd be a great guest, or you'd like to offer constructive criticism, or if you yourself would like to be on the podcast, hit me up. Reach out to me at one of the aforementioned social media channels, or if you're old school like I am, drop me an email, detoxpod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and take care. Hey everyone, in this episode I'm talking to Billy Mack. Billy is a musician, former business owner, and a dad of three young ones based in Pennsylvania. Uh, Billy spread the word about his music in the most grassroots way possible, traveling the country, playing small venues and house shows, sleeping on people's couches. We'll talk about the highs and lows of that experience during our conversation. Uh, We'll also talk about Billy's openness with other people and how that's been a blessing and a curse over the course of his life. Uh, We discuss raising kids without traditional gender roles, and you'll hear about Billy's experience with antidepressants. Everyone, please say hello to Billy Mack. My name is Billy Mack. I am a musician, a stay-at-home dad. I spent a lot of years of my life on the road playing music. I used to own a coffee shop and music venue in Allentown, Pennsylvania, and I just try to be a nice person. That is admirable. So what I usually ask people that are on the show that are musicians, and there have been a lot of musicians on the show, is what got you into music? What was the thing that made you say, hey, I want to be a musician when I grow up? I think it was first going to punk shows with my sister when I was about 11 years old. That's what got me interested. I got to go out with my cool older sister and see all these bands and everyone had cool hair and I loved it. And so it was always sort of on the back of my mind as something I could do. And once I started playing guitar, I just became completely engulfed by the desire to make music and figured out how to hack Windows Sound Recorder (laughs) to make the recordings better quality in longer than 30 seconds and used a $5 mic and would just get home from school and scream my heart out. (laughs) And I did that for a while. And then it was like around 2007 that I got the itch to start recording and touring in a more actual manner. And uh, from that point on, it became like a healing thing for me. And my original mission was to take everything that makes me uncomfortable and celebrate it. So I would just write all the stuff that filled my little anxious self with doubt and I forced myself to to get it out there and it actually worked wonders for my physical health in the way that I used to get sick to my stomach like I went home early from school 
all the time from anxious stomach aches. And once I started touring, it all sort of calmed down. So getting out of my shell, that was really important for my growth. And at that point, I said, this has to be part of my life forever. (laughs) That's awesome. What is it about music specifically that does such wonderful things for your mental health? Do you just forget about things to be anxious about? Or is it the fact that you're able to write songs and get those feelings out in words? That's a good question. I think it gives a validity to my experiences to put them down and to share them and to craft them. And then from there to share them with people and for even one person to go, oh, I totally get that. It makes your feelings feel a bit more real. I'm a person that's full of doubt, and I always am wrestling with why I feel the way I do, and is it okay to feel the way I do, all that kind of stuff. And it really creates a connection and in a really celebratory and communal way. I'm not a musician myself. Sometimes I wish I was, but I... My talents lay in other places. And one thing that attracted me to music, and I've been a fan of music since I was a, old enough to walk or talk, is that songwriters and singers express feelings that you feel, or that I felt sometimes like I was the only person that felt. And they're able to yeah. articulate those feelings in a way that is so beyond my scope of comprehension, it's not even funny. And I would imagine that for a songwriter or a musician or a singer, getting all that stuff out has got to be therapeutic and there's got to be added value in sharing your work with other people and having other people say, oh, I feel the same way too, or I've had this doubt, or I've had this anxiety, or I've had this happiness. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I don't want to say that I'm definitely a lyrics person because I love music too, but I think that that music itself can evoke those feelings that you lack the words for and set the tone for something in a way that really resonates. It really is a space where there's an amount of freedom there to express yourself. And I used to operate on this theory that you reminded me of when you said there was a bit of a hesitation when you're like, I'm not a musician, <laughs> but I love music. And I used to put all my effort and energy when I didn't have a family and all these other things, trying to seek out everyone I could that was not a musician, get them to come to my studio and write a song. I put out an album and was it 2009 called Coffee? And it was when I worked at a coffee shop out in South Dakota. And I tried to get every regular I could to write a song with me, probably about half of them actually being musicians, so to speak, but I get them to sing, speak, write, give me musical guidance. And we crafted a lot of really interesting stuff. I like the idea that everyone has a great song in them. You might be right. This is a weird thing, and I've actually never shared this before. There are times when I am in like a dream state, maybe half asleep, (laughs) half not, and I hear melodies in my head, and I I never can get to a point where I wake up and write that stuff down. And even when I do remember, I'm like, "Eh, nobody gives a shit. I'm not going to bother. And maybe there's a latent musician living somewhere in my mind, certainly. 
Yeah, it's there to some extent. And I mean, if it only exists in melodies that come to you half asleep, that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Right. That's still there. And if that's the capacity that you want to share it, you're still making it for you, even if it's just in your head. Right on. So did you grow up in Pennsylvania? Yeah, I grew up in the Pocono Mountains in a tiny little town called Tannersville. Oh, wow. What was that like? Well, it was a pretty interesting place because I I grew up there in a huge time of change where from when I was a kid and it was mostly a tourist town, like a tourist region into a bedroom community for New York City where it got to the point that it was over half of the county I lived in commuted over an hour for work. Oh, wow. And um, it was one of the two counties, Monroe County, that had the longest average commute in the country, and the other one was outside of Atlanta. And so I got to see a lot of change. I got to see a lot of things torn down, a lot of things come and go. I got to experience a lot of weird tension and anxiety amongst people that were living there, that were moving there. It was a pretty turbulent place, but also even with all that flux, it still felt very isolated. And you've now uh, seen pretty much the entire country. What ended up keeping you, I mean, you're not in the same town that you grew up in, but you're in the same state. Yeah. I would imagine relatively close. Yeah. (laughs) After seeing the country, what brought you back home, basically? I played a show with my future wife, and that's what brought me back. I had a sworn off living in Pennsylvania at that point, but love and the people you care about are more important than any ideas about what a place is. Absolutely. And you can make your own little community within that place if you have enough of the right people around you. Yeah. I believe that there are good people hidden in just about every corner of the country, even if finding like-minded folks can be difficult. I, I understand that. I haven't seen as much of the country as you have in light of, of current politics. Sometimes it is hard to believe that there are good people everywhere in the country. I feel that. Yeah. And certainly in some places it feels like they're outnumbered or at the very least the silent majority, silent minority, whatever it is. But uh, that's a good thing for me to keep in the back of my head, particularly when I get misanthropic, is that there are (laughs) good people everywhere in the country. Yeah, I've been still working to find my place of comfort in my new town in Hamburg, Pennsylvania. I learned about this in moving to this town. There's an American flag that people fly that's black and gray, And it's the Civil War flag of no quarter that basically means we will kill you. Boy. And they're flying that all. There's like probably four or five houses in this town. So it's definitely a little intimidating trying to figure out how to approach everyone and (laughs) keep to myself a lot more here. But we won the neighbor lottery and we have great neighbors with kids same age as ours and feel blessed for that. That's awesome. I know plenty of musicians, but someone who really went around the country DIY style. First of all, what possessed you to do that? What made you be like, I'm just going to go everywhere I can go to these far flung places and play music and meet people? It it was, I think, a weird mix of hubris and self-doubt. I just felt like I wanted to explore and I wanted to experience the world. I loved nature. I loved people. I at that point in my life, trusted damn near everyone I met. 
And when I first started, it was MySpace. <laughs> and I was messaging, I would look up states and bands that I thought people that would like my music would like. So for example, I was looking up Moldy Peaches, Oregon, and finding people in small towns across the country and just being like, hey, can I come play in your living room? <laughs> but I also avoided the big cities because I'm like, I'm not good enough. They'll never like me in the big city. Ah. <laughs> and eventually I found my place and started playing more cities, but I made it a goal to play small towns. And I think I related to that growing up in a small town too. Sure. And it was really a pretty fun adventure to see all these places I had never heard of and to spend time there. And I still have friends and lots of places I stay in touch with. And yeah, I, it didn't feel like much of an option for me. It just felt like a thing that I had to do. <laughs> That's cool. The way you did that is a little foreign to me because I feel like I still have a bit of stranger danger, right? And smart. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I feel like there is always a high chance of bad things happening to me. And there were times that I just got lucky, like when I ended up in this driving across state lines where I thought I was just trying to stay with someone in St. Louis and the guy is visibly tweaking out while he's driving the car like 80 miles per hour and swerving and I'm in the back seat like had a good run. So Whoa. <laughs> There are times where caution would have done me well. Obviously you I, made it. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I was lucky and I'm, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because the idea of reaching out to strangers and saying, hey, I want to play a show in your living room or I want to play a show somewhere and sleep on your couch or in your yeah. basement or whatever it is. That to me just sounds like the plot to a serial killer movie. <laughs> small town wyoming i remember playing an open mic and saying free cd to anyone who lets us sleep at their house <laughs> wow wow i mean the fact that you came away from that experience unscathed that you stayed at i assuming tons of different places in tons of different cities yeah. and the majority of people seemed like they were welcoming and accommodating and that kind of stuff there's a funny thing that I experienced traveling where the world seems more open and friendly. It's when I try to put down roots that I feel like things go more wrong. Interesting. Why do you think that is? It's part of what I'm in therapy to figure out. There's an element of who I've been most of my life that is extremely trusting. And I don't know what things to share and what things to not share. I think that I'm a bit of an emotionally needy person. Oh. I'm prone to codependent relationships. But I also think that when you really get to know someone and you get to know their heart and you get to know what they're about, it's also easier for the darker emotions to flare up. Like if when I was a traveler, it felt like people would meet me and be like, I want to do that. Like, when you see someone traveling, you want to facilitate that. You want it to work for them. You come into the relationship rooting for that person. Whereas when you just meet someone in your town, it's more of a neutral thing. I and the more in-depth it becomes, the more complex it becomes. In terms of relationships, well, you said that sometimes you feel like you're too open or too honest or you reveal too much. Has the fact that that maybe hasn't 
always gone the way that you wanted it to made you pull back from exposing yourself or being more forthright or open with people? To an extent, I mostly can't help myself. But yeah, I'm more guarded than I have been. I put friends only on some of my Facebook posts now. Okay. Yeah, I feel like 95% of my Facebook posts are friends only. I really had to learn to draw those lines when I was running a coffee shop because the thing that made me become extremely fixated on opening a shop when I was in Allentown was there was no coffee shop at that point in the entire region that I could think of that had a coffee bar. There was all lots of really nice shops and they had cool events and stuff, but nowhere that you sat and just could talk to the barista. Oh, wow. And that sort of became the pitch of my place. And when people didn't know where to go, they'd come to the coffee shop and it lent itself to being a very open space. And I tried to facilitate that through the social media presence of the shop. It was all about me being open, come here, be open, express yourself. We had notebooks that people could just write in anonymously or not. And people would pour their hearts out in them. People would come in when they knew it was slow and pour their hearts out to me. And people would show up at my house in the middle of the night because they ran away and they didn't know where to go. Wild stuff happened. Wow. And I, people started to use this phrase where they would call me a public figure. (laughs) And it made me guarded for the first time in my life. (laughs) Did you feel like your privacy was at risk? Did you feel like it was maybe opening you up to being taken advantage of? Yes. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And then what really blew the lid off of it was once I had a family and within a year I had three people for all completely different reasons say, well, what if this happened to your kids? I'm worried about your kids. When people start throwing stuff like that out, it really wakes you up to what's going on. Because most of my life, I was not overly tied to anyone or anywhere. And I had become sort of ambivalent to what happens in my own life. I had some sort of dark philosophies that I would live by that made me okay with putting myself at risk. Oh, wow. But once I had a family, it really changed those priorities. And it's like, there are people who depend on me and people who I'm responsible for their safety. And it changes what you share, how you share it, and who you share it with. Even though I am no kids and single, I understand how wanting needing to protect the people around you would certainly necessitate a change in your openness. You know, you can't have strangers knocking on your door anymore, not knowing their intentions when there are other people that you have to, it's like, I can handle myself if an issue comes up, but the bear comes out when you need to defend people who are not only defenseless, but people that you feel responsible for, I guess. Yeah. So... And that's sort of been a interesting lesson for me because one of the things that's always been valuable to me and part of my mission as a musician or as a business owner or anything, and I really aim to 
create a space where there isn't as much of a stigma around the thoughts and the feelings and being overcome by that. That's very important to me. You've got feelings, you've got struggles, let them out. And I'd try to facilitate places where people felt safe with that. So for a while, it felt almost hypocritical to me to roll that back a little bit. But I feel like the longer your life goes on, the more complex and cubist it becomes. And the less any idealistic answer becomes enough. Everything is full of so much nuance. And it can be a little frustrating and defeating, but it's also a rewarding puzzle to figure out when you can figure it out. If you can figure it out. Yeah. I talk about this all the time that things can be black or white just feels so unrealistic now. And I think that comes with age when you have enough life experience to realize, hey, there have been situations in which I felt this way and situations in which I felt this way. And I can see both sides and there's nothing right or wrong with being one or the other. I think when it comes to being open and being as philanthropic as you are. I think there's a way to do that while still also being protective of the things that you need to be protective of. The door perhaps shouldn't be open 100% of the time. Yeah. But that doesn't mean it's open 0% of the time either. And that balance is, I don't know about for everyone, but it's not an innate skill to me. It's something that you have to practice and figure out as much as you do playing any instrument or whatever how to manage your feelings and your thoughts and still be authentic it's a tall order it is a super tall order what does authenticity mean to you we're friends on facebook and i look at your status updates sometimes and i'm like oh man this guy needs a hug but i also relate very much to a lot of the things that you write just as someone who is who is curious about the world and maybe not certain about a lot of things there's an element of i think i get where this guy's coming from as someone who obviously feels feelings the way that you do how do you portray that in your real life to other people how do you present yourself as a full human being with all of these struggles and dichotomies and the things that most humans deal with but a lot of humans particularly men like to pretend they don't deal with Yeah, ain't that the truth? (laughs) (laughs) It it really is. Yeah, I remember feeling like a total alien in high school because I couldn't tamp down those feelings even when I wanted to. And I'd get harassed for it, but it was who I was. But as far as how to present yourself as a full person while being a person who feels, I think I try to be what I consider an active listener that like when I listen to someone, I don't just try to take in the words, but I try and think of what it means to hear the kind of thing that someone is talking to me about. How do they want it to be received? Not just like they want it to be heard, but how do they want it to be received? Because that's so often what I'm looking for is someone that I can talk to and not just feel like I'm dumping information or feelings on them, but someone that is receiving it and they don't even have to be giving anything back or I don't have to be giving anything, but there's an art to listening compassionately. And I think that 
a lot of that has to deal with checking assumptions at the door. The only thing I try to work on as an assumption is that people are feeling animals. This person is probably talking to me because there's something on their mind. How do you receive and validate and internalize that in a way that is meaningful to them? I definitely try to think of what I'm giving to the person that I'm talking to. And I'm there is a danger of getting too wrapped up in how I'm listening to things that I become a bit of a airheaded listener. (laughs) But that's why I try to make sure I get enough sleep. (laughs) That's got to be hard to do with three kids. Yeah, it's I, I I'm sort of working on coming out of the pandemic is the pandemic. Still is the pandemic. But, uh, I have COVID, so the yeah. pandemic is not over. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But even besides that, I was in a bit of a, a holding period where I was taking a good look at myself, but also recognizing that I couldn't be the listener that I wanted to be. I felt like I wasn't able to really give a lot to friendships. And I tried to be open about that. It's really been like when I get into something deep or for a few years, I'd get into something deep and I could just feel my eyes glaze over. And that was a big part of when I realized I was burnt out at the coffee shop was Mm -hmm. when I was struggling to be present for people. And I don't know if it was a sleep burnout, an empathy burnout, or... I mean, it was all of them. It was Yeah, all it can be both. But, uh, but yeah, I feel that most people just want to be treated as though their life has meaning. And I try to bring that with me wherever I go. That's wise. Speaking of things being innate, is that something <clears throat> you had to learn over time? Or is it something that you just always thought about? I think it's a bit of both. My family is full of anxious, thoughtful, emotional people. My mom is a very compassionate and feeling person. And I think that she would present me with philosophy that I think a lot of people wouldn't present children with. And she would allow there to be uncertainty. I remember instead of me about religion or the afterlife, she's like, what I think would be nice is if we could come back as something else. I don't know if we do, but I think that would be nice. And that was almost the full extent of what I was taught about the afterlife as a child. That's kind of awesome. I I try to bring it to my own, the way that I raise my kids. I try to let them know that I don't know everything. And if they want to hear an explanation as to why something's happening, I'll always do my best to provide it. I think that it's always possible for anyone to be wrong. (laughs) I think that's an important thing for kids to learn, especially from their parents. I have my experience to go on, right? And it was a real reckoning for me to realize that the people that I grew up listening to, that I thought knew everything, didn't know anywhere near as much as I thought they did and didn't know as much as they thought they did. Certainly didn't know as much as they presented themselves to. And I think for a parent saying, hey, look, I'm a grown up, but I don't know everything. We can learn about this together. Or you might know more than me about this particular thing. I think it's important to establish that. I think it makes for better adjusted and certainly more empathetic, more thoughtful adults. 
Yeah, it has its challenges in the moment. When you have it open for the kid to argue every single thing with you, it can really right. try your patience. Right. Right. But I see them advocating for themselves at the age of four, and I think that that's huge, and that's worth the struggle. Right now, my son is struggling with a bit of aggression, and he's at the point that he can say, I don't know why I did that. And now he's at the point that he can pick something up like he's going to throw it and then go walk to his room and take a break. And I I think it's kind of amazing. I want him to know that it's okay to feel anger. It's what you do with it. So I think one of the things that I walked away from my childhood unprepared to deal with was anger. Throughout my childhood, my dad struggled a lot with anger. He would always take it out on inanimate objects. But he still struggled with it. Sure. And he did a lot of growing and learning. I know that he talked to people about it. And he grew when he... You'd never see that anymore. You And it's awesome. And he's really showed growth. But I didn't learn any of his journey. And I didn't learn anything about what to do with anger. Or even what it felt like to be angry. Like, so... I the few times in my life that I've felt really truly angry have been panic inducing for me because I'm just like what do I do with this? I've settled on just destroying cardboard boxes <laughs> when no one's around and feeling guilty about it, but <laughs> it's it's a cardboard box. It's not going to be upset that you destroyed it, Joey. I remember the first time that I really dealt with like this feeling of anger, I got cheated on in high school and I snuck out in the middle of the night and I had a bottle of orange juice for some reason. I took the bottle and I just chucked it. And <laughs> the next morning I, on my way to the school bus, went and got the bottle oh. and felt bad for wasting the orange juice and beat myself up for it in my head. Anger is one of those emotions that I think is complicated for a lot of people because everybody feels anger. If you say you don't get angry, you're probably lying to yourself. I'm not going to say unilaterally that everybody feels anger, but I think everybody feels anger at least once in their lives. And it's hard to figure out what a healthy coping mechanism for that is. Because I don't know about you, for me, I need to hit something. Or there was a point in time, certainly when I was angry, I either needed to hit something or I internalized it and basically just sort of sat on my emotions until it came out some other way that was probably not good either. And to this day, I, I still don't know if I have very good coping mechanisms for anger. I tend to internalize. But the cardboard box way isn't necessarily a bad way. The shame that I attached to it wasn't great. <laughs> it's a the, box! Uh, it's a, but I, I think that part of that is anger is very rarely modeled in a positive way. Oh, yeah. It's always presented as a negative emotion because it's often attached to negative things, but we also have a bit of a stigma around it, too. You look at how, especially in the realm of masculinity, how anger is dealt with in media and, and a lot of 
people how they live their lives. There's not a lot of examples for children to grow up with or adults to experience where anger is modeled in a way other than explosive fury. <laughs> yeah, or, I, I feel like anger in in media portrayals <clears throat> and just in the way that we've all been taught, anger should be get or yeah, anger should result in violence. Yeah. And I even think there's a cultural moment happening right now that's messy and sloppy, but I think that in the realm of social justice, people are trying to figure out how to wield anger in a way that is productive. And I think that just because of the way that our culture is, we all grew up in it, and therefore we're all... uh, for the most part, a bit out of practice when we first start engaging with it. And what do you do with that? How does it affect how you talk to people? How does it affect how you carry yourself? Is it okay for it to affect how you carry yourself? All of that is very nuanced and complicated. One thing that I've been trying to practice is if I'm upset, I will just say, I feel angry about this and just try and say it calmly. And it's almost like an out-of-body experience to address it like that. But I think it's kind of meaningful. I don't know that I've ever been angry and then actually said, I'm angry. It's a weird feeling. (laughs) I bet. (laughs) Huh. It's... That might be worth trying. And that works for you? I think it doesn't make it go away or anything. But I think when you are talking to someone and you're trying to work through something, if they're being a collaborative part of the discussion, you know, think about when someone's angry, you interact with them a little differently. You move a bit slower and a bit more paced. You try to incorporate things that are calming and you can have a more authentic discussion when everyone knows where the other person is at. And granted, sometimes you're halfway through a conversation and then you're like, oh man, I'm actually kind of pissed off. <laughs> and at that point, you don't always know how you feel right away. But to start from the ground that someone's like, I feel hurt, I feel angry, it helps how to approach each other. I think that's just part of trusting a conversation or trusting a conversational partner or partners enough to want to be transparent with them. Yeah. And to throw it back to a previous anecdote, it's actually more intimidating to say to someone exactly how you feel than to get in a car with someone who's obviously been taking copious amounts of hard drugs. (laughs) Trusting someone not to kill you in an act of recklessness is somehow easier than being like, hey, I'm really mad at you. It's such a level of vulnerability that so many of us are not used to. It's like you're stepping into this car butt naked, like asking for judgment, kind of. Cause it, yeah. And I think we also, as humans, we're looking for the predictive text, right? Like we want to know what someone's reaction is going to be when we tell them something. And we get uncomfortable telling them things that we think might get a negative reaction out of them. That's why people don't come out because they're just afraid of the reaction that they're going to get from people that they have an emotional investment in. 
and thinking of coming out that adds a whole other level of like does it affect your physical safety to be open with people because right. that's a real thing too right and so if you don't trust your safety around a person you can't have authentic discussions with them yeah in order to have honest discussions with somebody, you have to feel safe. In order to feel safe, you have to open yourself up and you have to be vulnerable in a way that, I mean, look, for me, it's uncomfortable. I would imagine for people that are less accustomed to doing it, it's even more uncomfortable. And one of my ideals is to just grow into this person who doesn't necessarily throw aside safety, but feels empowered to present their authentic self in any given situation. But that's still a process because there are people that I don't feel safe around. Yeah. My wife and I have been in couples counseling for a while. And having that facilitator, that person who makes sure both people are heard, that person who's another person in the room, like, I would love to see, why isn't there a friendship counselor? Why don't you hear more about parent-kid counselors? I mean, a lot of people also don't trust therapy. They think that people will feel victimized but so that's a whole other effort and trying to write songs as my understanding of the world becomes more complicated gets harder and harder because i want to add exceptions and addendums to everything (laughs) (laughs) well this would help except for this but maybe this will help again no black or white no definitive statements yeah but it does sound like therapy and counseling has worked pretty well for you worked wonders (laughs) and there's still a lot to go and i honestly don't plan on ever walking away from it as long as it's something that's reasonable for me to afford was there any trepidation pulling the trigger and saying hey this is something that i need to do for certain issues yes like delving into like my relationship with sexuality and masculinity that was a lot harder for me to address in therapy than the first time I went to therapy was because of my relationship with food and a lot of unhealthy eating patterns and emotional strife based around food. That was much easier for me to approach in therapy. So I think it was easy for me to first go into therapy, but then to get into specialized messy stuff that I don't have an outcome in mind. That's harder. I would imagine is the hard part explaining it to someone else or is the hard part trying to articulate it yourself or to yourself i'd say both and more (laughs) also like i think that growing up as a child of the internet and social media and as someone who's documented their life extensively through music and photography, there's an element of it almost feeling like everything I say out loud, anything I give weight to, becomes a permanent part of my history. Hmm. And there are things that I don't understand. There are things that I don't like that go through my mind. There are things that I don't like about how I've treated people in the past. Part of life, unfortunately, is being hurt and hurting people and learning about how to be a human through that. But you don't want to have that on your conscience forever, but you also do have to work through it. So saying some of the stuff out loud that I've never said to anyone because I know that I don't like it, that's hard. 
yeah, I, I can relate to that. It's looking yourself in the mirror, warts and all, <laughs> yeah. is, is not an easy thing to do, particularly if you're prone to living inside your head because you can then yeah. enumerate every single fucked up thing that you did. And, and then it's like, oh, it's icky. It's looking back at childhood photos, but everything that went into those photos and was in that situation at that time. And that's, it's hard to look back on a lot of times. Man, there's nothing stranger than seeing a photo where everyone's smiling that was an absolutely dark memory. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if this is an American thing or not, but we're taught to smile and ignore smile through and ignore so much. And there's always, you can't take things at face value. Someone may be smiling. Someone may be smiling, having a conversation with you, but you don't know what's going on really behind that person's head, unless yeah. they feel comfortable enough to tell you what's going on in there. Yeah, that is so true. One of the weird things about having met so many people in my life and trusted so many people in my life and been in circles of people who are struggling through most of my life is I've met a lot of people who have done really, really awful things. There was this guy that I, I was friends with out in Portland, Oregon. When I was living out there, I would house sit for him. He was a couch surfing host. I, I sent a lot of travelers his way. I was like kind of amped because I had a friendship with another guy that felt like a really healthy thing. And it turns out the whole time while I'm telling my friends to stay at this guy's house, he had a hidden camera in his bathroom. And all this time I was helping him meet people Sheesh. and just fully trusting this guy. Like he bought me my first airplane ticket because he worked at the airport and got me a discount. I thought this guy was great. We had so much fun together. And lo and behold, all of those pictures I have of these times that I loved at the time, look at them now. I'm like, oh, man. And just stuff like that. It's not obviously not your fault. You, yeah. you trusted someone and they betrayed your trust. And that has no bearing on, on your decision making or the type of person you are. But it's easy to go down that that road. Oh, I know. And, and the more people that you've gone down that kind of a road with, the easier it is to be like, how did I get suckered again? But I'm a cynic, man. And there's still a big part of me that wants to believe the best in people. And every couple of months, I'm like, oh, Mike, you're an idiot. How did you put your trust in that person? But it's... It's like Charlie Brown in the football, right? You keep going for the same yeah. thing. And the thing is, sometimes it actually does work and you end up having a valuable relationship. But the times when it doesn't work are the times that you feel it most prominently and then yeah. it just digs at you. So my mom was very open with philosophy with me. My dad, not as much. But there's one thing that he, he was in the Vietnam War as a photographer Oh, wow. But he said one thing they learned in the military that's probably one of the only real philosophical things, so to speak, that he told me is like, 10 aw shits is one at a boy. <laughs> and, like, and he also never cursed around me. 
or no, ten out of boys is one off shit. shit. Like the ten good things is is equal to one, to one bad yeah. thing, and it feels the same way with relationships. The amount of people that haven't done awful things far outnumber the people that have. But there's this weird thing to when people who do monstrous things seem human to you. Like, when people have done really, really bad things, you've had conversations that felt really deep and thoughtful and meaningful with those people. But there's some, like, darkness lurking inside of them that they're acting on, and it's just like, how did that happen? happen just the fact that someone can be so compassionate or so present for you or or give so much and then turn around and ruin another person's life we contain multitude and we are a complicated species ain't that the truth yeah so figure i'd get a couple of quick hit questions out of the way sure Uh, what do you think is the topic that you write about the most these days it's A lot of like how to navigate the world in a positive way while feeling wildly sad. (laughs) What are some things that you do besides writing songs to mitigate your sadness? I play Magic the Gathering with my friends. I take photographs and I goof around with my kids and play video games i guess <laughs> i grew up playing tons of video games tons of magic the gathering i grew up on that so you're um, you're younger than me so what was your first console yes okay oh uh, okay maybe you're not that much younger like, than me. i'm born in 86 you're you're 10 years younger than me so yeah okay yeah. my dad always loved video games so i i sort of had a and early in, the first one that I remember getting is the Super Nintendo, but I grew up playing the NES before that. Okay. But so I grew up real deep in all that. And then around the time that I was getting into high school, I made this conscious decision that I didn't want to dedicate my life to games. And I knew how prone I was to just doing nothing but that. So I walked away from all of it. And since settling down more around the time that we were having kids... I revisited it all, and as I stepped away from going to shows, from playing shows, from traveling, it felt like all the doors were closing as far as how to meet people, how to have a social life, and Magic the Gathering was the one thing to open that up. I think my last console was PlayStation 2. Oh, wow. Or GameCube, and then... I actually traded magic cards for my Nintendo Switch because I wanted to play games with my kids. <laughs> That's a, a, a huge time gap between like a PS2 and a Switch. Yeah, I walked away from magic in the year 2000 and I walked away from video games around 2004 or five. Wow. Okay. And, I just went cold turkey. And now you're back my in My entire it. life was music. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Switching gears, what is your relationship with food now? Is it because you'd mentioned that as the initial impetus for you to go on um, therapy? It's still complicated. If I am stressed out, I need my food to be as bland as possible and as simple texture wise. Otherwise, I find it almost impossible to eat and I work myself into indigestion. Hmm. Interesting. I don't know. I still don't know exactly why it happens, but I have 
a better understanding of when it happens and how to mitigate it. So when you're stressed out, is it just like, I'm going to reach for this box of crackers and... and Yeah, crackers, a mac and cheese. These days, until I was in my 20s, I couldn't even get myself to eat pizza, but now pizza is one of the comfort foods. Nachos, something made of tomatoes, something made of wheat. That's about it. <laughs> okay. It sounds like that relationship is still a work in progress. Yeah, in terms of... It's come a long way, but yeah. In terms of masculinity, since that's the overarching theme of this podcast anyway, particularly as someone who is now a parent, how do you feel about your comfort level within your masculinity? Yeah, well, I've come to feel more at home in my body than I I used to. I still feel like an alien 90% of the times that I'm in a room of just men. I have a lot of trouble relating. I have always felt more at home in queer spaces than anywhere else. I've just felt sort of like homeless identity-wise. I don't really relate with at least the American version of masculinity that I'm familiar with. I don't know how I'd feel in another country or another culture. I just sort of, at this point, accept however people want to treat me and look at me. And I think that's the simplest answer I can give. Okay. I mean, it doesn't have to be a simple answer. <laughs> yeah. I guess I wrestle like with how much of masculinity is, is innate is learned. It's such an abstract concept that feels so concrete because of how omnipresent it is. And I think it's been a really interesting window having boy-girl twins and trying to live in a household that didn't push any gender norms. So I'll be like, wow, Felix is, is such a boy. But I'll say that while he's wearing a dress, but he's got his action figures going boom, boom, boom. So there are certain things that were just innate in him and other things that just he didn't want to wear a T-shirt today. Or he wants to wear all leopard print tank tops and tight pants. And then the next day he wants to wear his Paw Patrol shirt. He seems very comfortable being fluid, but there are certain things that he does embody that are boy things and our daughters the same way and having raised them in a way that they both had access to the same toys the same conversations the same opportunities in a weird way even though there are more gender stereotypes than I expected with the kids it almost makes me feel like who people are is who people are. You can't tell anyone that they're not who they are. There's an element of who you are that you're born with. And for a lot of people, for whatever reason, it can fit into these two categories. But like... A lot of times it doesn't. You don't get to tell anyone who they are. Yeah, well, I I agree with you there. And again, I don't have kids. And I try to stay away from talking about, like, if I had kids. But I do love the fact that so many of my friends who are parents are really trying not to enforce traditional gender roles on their kids because you got to let people be who they are. Otherwise they grow up with fucking complexes and you just end up making adulthood that much harder for them. Yeah. 
That's the truth. And it just doesn't seem worth it to try and tell anyone who they are. To me, it doesn't seem like any good comes out of that. (laughs) I'm on the side of agreement with you there, Billy, for sure. What is the thing about you that you most like? And what is the thing about you that you are most actively attempting to do differently? Ooh, I got to say something nice about myself. Say something nice about yourself, Billy. Well, I... I like that throughout my life, no matter where I've been emotionally, I have been able to make people feel comfortable around me even when I'm not comfortable. I'm very happy that I've been a person that people have felt comfortable coming to. And I think the thing that I'm most actively working on changing is just trying to avoid getting into emotional pits where I'm just like basking in feelings that aren't doing anyone any good. Figuring out how to be less prone to getting stuck emotionally. If you figure that out, call me. (laughs) We'll be first on the list. Yeah, because I'm working on that as well. Yeah. How do you shake yourself out of it? Yeah, because COVID and and, and the state of the world kind of combined put me in a dark space that I'm inching out of, I guess, slowly. But when I drop, I drop and I kind of wallow. I get it. So... Working on figuring that out too. We're definitely not alone. I think that one of the things I wish I said a little bit more on was with what I was writing about, like with music, it's it's relevant to everything we've talked about. But I had gone through a multi-year dry spell where I was struggling to write music. And after I started therapy and antidepressants is when I started writing again. And a lot of the idea of navigating the world in a positive way when you're sad, the one album that I, I... wrote is a collection of songs that are kind of retrospective me looking at different ways i was trying to mitigate sadness without realizing it was sadness so it's not quite a concept album or a narrative but every song sort of takes a look at a different period of my life and how i look back on it now through the understanding of that i'm a person who has depression And trying to really zero in on that because it's really helpful for me. And I feel so grateful that I can write again. (laughs) That's an interesting take because I've heard this from people and I've even said this myself that for some medications that I've been on, I can't say this definitively. I feel like they've sapped my creativity. So the idea that it kind of restarted it for you, I think perhaps gives hope to people that if they get on the right thing, it can turn those lights. So my therapist specifically from our conversations recommended me a medication that she felt did not hinder creativity. I don't know the veracity of that claim or what the (laughs) science is behind it, but for whatever reason, sertraline opened doors for me instead of shutting them. And that's going to be different for everyone because I used to take the medication my wife takes now that helps her. 
it made me start passing out throughout the day. <laughs> oh, that, that's not so, good like, at all. There's no no map for brain chemistry. <laughs> yeah, no one size fits all. Um, Our internal chemistry is all different. But yeah, I needed my mind to go quiet for a little bit before I could figure out what I was even working through. I mean, by the time I closed the coffee shop and I was completely burnt out, I would just get home drink a few beers and listen to sad music on repeat until I was ready to go to bed and wake up and do it all over again. again. I was in a real pit. I was miserable. <laughs> I was going through what seemed like an endless struggle to get health care and then to figure out after a decade of not going to doctors and how to deal with that. Like it was it and just like realizing that I was paying myself pennies per hour and I'm certain that took years off my life running that business. I was in a really, really dark, dark place and I could not on my own get myself out of it and I'm grateful that I found the medicine that let me feel a bit of freedom from that. That's awesome. That I I think that even saying that will give some people who are listening hope that that there are solutions out there. Yeah, I have no regrets that I've held on through the dark times. Amen to that. <laughs> Billy Mac Collector's latest album, October Naps, was released earlier this year, and you can find it on all of your favorite streaming services uh, and on Bandcamp if you go to BillyMacCollector.Bandcamp. Com. If you want to follow Billy on social media, you can find him on Twitter at BMACCollector, or you can find him on Instagram and on TikTok at BillyMacCollector, and he is on Facebook at BillyMacCollector. So make sure you check him out. Big, big shout out to Billy for being open and awesome. I really, really appreciate it, and I, I'm glad that you took the time to sit and talk, and um, I will be doing it again soon, hopefully. Thank you for listening to Detoxicity. I hope you found this particular episode interesting. And if you are new, I hope you go back and listen to all of the older episodes. Uh, once again, my name is Mike Joseph. I am the host and producer of this show. And uh, there are a lot of things that you can do to continue to support our mission, continue to support this podcast. Uh, follow me on social media. I am on Instagram, Twitter, and I'm on TikTok as Detox Pod Guy. Uh, you can also send me an email if you'd like. I'm at detoxpod at gmail.com. I am always on the hunt for people with interesting, inspirational, and powerful stories. So if you know somebody who fits that bill or if you yourself fit that bill, please don't hesitate to drop me a line via email or via social media. Uh, please make sure you subscribe on your podcast platform that you're listening to this on. Uh, rate, comment, help a brother out, uh, help us move up in the rankings. Uh, follow me on social media. Like I said, uh, follow our Patreon or subscribe to my Patreon, actually. Patreon.com slash detoxicity pod you get access to exclusive episodes you get episodes a little earlier than the general public you get a cool ass sticker lots of stuff once again patreon.com slash detoxicity pod quick shout out to calvin williams for providing the music and uh doing his magic on the logo which was originally designed by jacob block i thank you all for listening i wish you all the best please take care of each other till next time peace